From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Donut Dollies were Red Cross volunteers who helped remind the troops of home, starting in World War II, clear up to Vietnam, which is where two Colorado women served. Sometimes they'd be the first American women U.S. soldiers had seen in months. I think one of the most common reactions we got everywhere we went was we would drive by in a Jeep and and whoever the guys were on the side of the road would go like, they they were fast. Yeah, they were so surprised. And it probably took me a year after getting back to the U.S. before I stopped looking to see if they were surprised to see me. (laughs) Nobody was surprised to see me here. It's a nice feeling. (laughs) Too bad you can't bring it home. Right. There's a move to give Donut Dollies the Congressional Gold Medal. Today, how they changed lives and how their own lives changed. There is no tax deduction for giving a vehicle away to a friend or family member, but if you donate it to a charity or other tax-exempt organization like Colorado Public Radio, you can claim a tax deduction. Your donated car, motorcycle, or truck benefits you and it benefits CPR. Start the win-win donation process at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Their service went largely unnoticed through three wars, but national recognition may be coming. For Veterans Day, let's learn about a group of women known as the Donut Dollies. Starting in World War II, these recent college graduates volunteered to spend a year on the battlefield, boosting troops' morale. The Dollies also served in Korea, then Vietnam, which is where Jackie Norris of Denver and Terry Hermans of Aurora were deployed. And welcome to you both. Thank Thank you. Also with us, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, is Terry's husband, Jerry. Hi, Jerry. Hi. Jerry and Terry. It's a little on the nose. Yeah, (laughs) cute. More on that in a moment, indeed. Terry, you spent quite a bit of time out in the field with Vietnam troops. Could you give us a sense of what those days were like? My first assignment was Camp Eagle in the northern part of South Vietnam. And each day we would get up about 5 a.m., go to breakfast, and the helicopter had been arranged for two of us to go out in the field. And we would get on the helicopter, go from fire base to fire base during the day, five to six fire bases a day. Oh, so it was like a traveling show during the day. (laughs) It it kind of was. (laughs) Our presentations on the fire bases would be a game show, or we would gather the guys together, divide them into two groups, and maybe have airplane flying contests or just crazy stuff where we'd ask them questions. You mentioned airplane races. These were paper airplanes. Yes, they were. (laughs) And they would compete against each other, but they would get very involved in something that was totally distant from what they were used to doing on the fire base. Huh. So did you consider yourself an entertainer? Mm, No, not really. What did you consider yourself? Someone who involved the troops in taking their minds off of what they were doing and where they were. Uh Uh-huh. How would you describe your role, Jackie? 
you know, what we all wanted to do the most was get on those helicopters and get out to the fire bases because we felt like those were the guys that had the, the greatest need to talk with an American woman. What were the conversations like? You know, you always start with, where are you from? Tell me about your family. What do you want to do when you get back? Just regular friend-to-friend conversation. We ended up being like a sister to the guys in the field. I think that's... Mm-hmm. Well, was... I, I'm glad you specified that as opposed to girlfriend. Yes. Or in, yeah. other, in other words, there, there wasn't some expectation that you would show a little shoulder or something. <laughs> not no. at all. No, not <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. who, no. the setting is a p- yeah. very specific setting, so I wanted right. to make sure. And so it was a respectful environment for you. Absolutely. Very respectful. Very I'm much so. <laughs> what kind of physical danger were you in, if any? I never felt it that much. I mean, we were were in the same danger anybody in a—we lived in a rear area, but we went out to the forward areas, and you never knew what was going to happen because we used to say there was really no front line in Vietnam. Mm, Everything was a line. Everything was a line. But the military and the Red Cross went out of their way to protect us. So I I always felt well taken care of. I mean, we we all have stories about, you know, when we had to get in the bunker, (laughs) but— We were well taken care of. Were the helicopter flights sometimes nerve-wracking? No, no. <laughs> I loved They were fun. They were fun. <laughs> we we were just out of college, and we enjoyed every minute of the helicopter. And the helicopters that we flew in were Hueys without doors. So we were always looking straight out into the air when we were flying. I'm just, like, making a note of how much braver you are than I would be um, (laughs) in that environment. What motivated you to go to Vietnam? I have to think that there were young people you knew who were going to Vietnam, perhaps not coming back. It was an unpopular war. um, And yet you, you still served. Why? Jackie, you want to take that first? Sure. Well, I had a couple reasons. My mother was actually a Red Cross donut dolly in World War II. This was generational for you. Yeah. So my, my mother served. Her sister, my aunt, also served in the Red Cross in Korea. We had a very military family. So and who was your employer, on. Red Cross or the military? Red Cross. And what were your reasons, Terry? Well, my dad was in the Army, so I had lived pretty much all over the world, graduated from high school in Tehran, Iran. And um, after I graduated from college, it was like, I wanted to travel. I wanted to keep traveling. And also, my dad's still in the Army, and I wanted to do something to help the Vietnam War. You know, I felt some obligation, and this looked like an exciting thing to do. And actually, my dad was in Vietnam at the same time I was. I wondered. I wondered. So father and daughter were serving at the same time. Right. Did you ever catch up when you were in Vietnam? A couple times, yeah. My goodness. In fact, I pinned on his colonel wings in Da Nang. What is uh, maybe a scene or an interaction with a service member that stands out to you? Jackie? There's one I'll never forget where I was just sitting in the rec center talking to a GI, and it was early on in my tour, so I hadn't gotten totally familiar with everything to do and not to do yet. And so I was used to patting people when I talked. So I reached out and patted him on the arm, and he went, don't touch me. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, He said, I just don't think I can take being touched by an American woman right now. And it was kind of a, it was so poignant because it was why we were there, but it was totally understandable. He was just happy to sit there and talk for a little while. 
He'd been so deprived, though, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of that touch that yeah. to have it again would actually yeah. be too painful. Very tough for him. Yeah. My goodness. Terry, any... Oh, yeah. I had uh, one experience where we were flying to a fire base, two of us, two women, and the helicopter pilot was told to stop in a certain place and pick up one guy who was on the ground with his dog. He was a long-range patrol person. And he got on the helicopter with the two of us women and his mouth was hanging open and he just stared at us the whole time. And we, we, we tried to talk to him, but he, he had been in the field over six months with his dog and he couldn't even communicate with us. Wow. He was starstruck in a way. He was, yes. I think one of the most common reactions we got everywhere we went was mm-hmm. we would drive by in a Jeep and, and whoever the guys were on the side of the road would go like, they, they were fast. Surprised. Yeah, they were so surprised. <laughs> and it probably took me a year after getting back to the U.S. before I stopped looking to see if they were surprised to see me. <laughs> nobody was surprised to see me here. It's a nice feeling. <laughs> Too bad you can't bring it home. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Although one of you brought something home. So Jerry Hermans, <laughs> you are Terry's husband. I'll say that you were assigned to one of the bases Terry was. First off, Jerry, what did you do during the war? I was a finance officer. I paid a division of troops. I tried to get people to send it home. No, they wanted it in cash, kind of, so they could spend it at the PX. Well, you could buy anything at the PX really inexpensively. Uh We were in a very safe Area compared out in the fire bases. You we mentioned got, the PX, that's the post exchange, which is the yeah. company store for like yep, a that's short right. term. Yep. You met Terry during the war. Yes. How did that come about? Well, I was near the Cambodian border and then I got transferred down to the division headquarters, which is in Kuchi, Vietnam. And you may have heard of the Kuchi tunnels. That was right underneath that base. We didn't know it at the time. But Terry got assigned to Coochie right before she went home. I think it was, what, two months we knew each other so? Yeah. <laughs> and we had what we called the barf lounge. Illegal. The barf lounge? Yeah. Okay. Because you weren't supposed to have a separate bar. You had to go to the officer's club or whatever. Well, that was too far away. And so we had this little eight-by-eight eight thing. And everything there was a dime, whether it was a Coke, a shot of a liquor or a beer, whatever. My kind of prices. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, every Wednesday night, because the Red Cross hooches were right around the corner so they could walk. We invited the nurses too, but they were way across the post and they couldn't get there. But anyway, so every Wednesday night, one guy was responsible for getting food. We have like a cookout kind of thing. And so she came over, and uh, what impressed me was we ran out of Chevis. She likes Chevis. And, uh, oh, this is Chevis Regal. Yep. That's Scotch. It. Scotch, <laughs> yeah, okay. And we ran out. And uh, she said, well, I'm going to go back and get my own. And, and she showed up. So with, with my bottle of Chevis. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we stayed quite a bit longer. There, there was no time limit to go back home. Yeah, anyway. Are you still drinking it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're certainly consistent. Not the same bottle. No, yeah. <laughs> that bottle's long gone. Well, I know that the idea behind moving the donut dollies to different bases every few months was 
so they wouldn't get to know the soldiers too well and form attachments. Which means that I guess the two of you broke the rules a bit. Well, not really. We were friendly, but that was pretty much it. It was a very platonic relationship. It was. (laughs) We were good friends, but after I left, he was still in Vietnam. Mm. And we wrote letters back and forth. And then when he came back, I think that's kind of what cemented our relationship. (laughs) I'm curious to ask you about this term, donut dollies. It's, I don't know, it feels a little dismissive somehow. Jackie, what do you think of the term? I think like most women in our role, we've learned that it was an affectionate title. Uh It didn't come with any disrespect. It started with Literally, with my mother in World War II. Yeah. So, Were there uh, actually donuts? They, they actually drove trucks with donut machines yes. on them and coffee. And they followed the troops around in some areas yeah. Yeah. and served coffee and donuts and, and had a record player so they could play music while they served coffee and donuts. Oh, Terry, did you ever have donuts? No. Okay. <laughs> in you... Vietnam, we did not have no. donuts. We, on occasion, we would help serve meals in the field or hand out lemonade or something, but that was something that they did in World War II, Mm -hmm. and the program changed quite a bit. I wonder, Jerry, if you could speak to what it would have been like for GIs to see someone like Jackie or Terry. Well, probably, like they said earlier, would be like a sister or an aunt or someone from home. It might remind them of better circumstances, obviously, a lot better circumstances. There is a move to give the Donut Dollies as a group the Congressional Gold Medal, which is really on par with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civil honor. Terry, do you want to speak to the prospect of that medal? I have such mixed emotions because I don't believe that we did anything that extraordinary. So... I don't know if it's something I deserve. Mm. <laughs> and I'm in complete agreement with you. Yeah, Terry. I was just going to ask you. You know, I think it was, we were 21 when we went over there. We were right. looking for adventure. We were we were so naive. We didn't know to be scared. Yeah. And people have talked to us over the years about how brave we were. And, you know, my thought has always been, I hate to say this, but it was one of the best years of my life, just in terms of and the I, experience. I fully agree with Jackie. So, it yeah, was. to get a congressional was, medal for something yeah. that was one of the biggest adventures I ever had and that did so much for me as an individual. Personally, yeah. yeah. It just seems like we would never expect that. What did it do for you? For me, it brought my personality out in a way that I had developed more self-confidence. Yeah. I've done a lot of public speaking, and people would say to me, you're so comfortable in front of a, <laughs> an audience. And I say, well, when the first group you talk to publicly is 50 GIs in a mess hall in South Vietnam during the war, pretty much everything is easy after that. Right. So it's just self-confidence and, and also kind of a, an understanding that that was the kind of work I wanted to do in some form for a career. Did you? Yeah, I worked for the Red Cross for many years, and I still volunteer with the Red Cross. Uh, Terry, what what did you learn? I would have to agree with Jackie that I think it built our self-confidence tremendously because we were out there. We had to go to the troops, and we had to gather them up and bring them out. and Connect. 
connect with them. And, and, and if they're as starstruck, as mouth agape as you describe them, right. you had to do the talking. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. We, w- we would usually open with, I'm Terry and I'm from Nebraska. And the other gal would say, I'm so-and-so and I'm, I'm Jackie. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm from Denver. I'm from Denver. <laughs> and from there, then we'd get things rolling. Jerry, does it surprise you to hear both Terry and Jackie say, ah, I'm not sure about the Congressional Gold Medal. Well, we've actually discussed it, and uh, really, they had a lot more danger than I did. And uh, I thought, well, you know, not compared to a guy in the field who's really subjected to such terrible circumstances, but (laughs) they they had a a ball. They really enjoyed it, and the memories and the, the contacts that they made over the years we still get together with six people that were over there, Red Cross gals of Terry's. But there were risks. You're saying that Jackie well, and Terry. Some risk, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I guess before we go, those who returned from Vietnam were often faced with just a lot of, um, well, ugliness. Yes. Uh, a lot of opposition to the war. And rather than blaming. You know, the power brokers, it was often the people who had their boots on the ground that were the brunt of that ugliness. Did you face any of that, Jackie, Terry, as Donut Dollies? When I came back, I had the good fortune to be asked to do recruitment for other Donut Dollies. So I spent three months traveling the country, doing radio, TV, and going on college campuses. And when I got to Wisconsin, they didn't promote my visit on the University of Wisconsin Hmm. in Madison because it was a hotbed of protests, and they were afraid something would happen. But that's the closest I ever came to it. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't personally struggle with it. But the thing that's always bothered me the most is that the GIs, the young men, the men of all ages who served in Vietnam, never got the welcome home, never got the appreciation that every other single war veteran in our country has gotten. And to this day, I think they still deserve a whole lot more than they ever got. I kind of disagree with that. The people that were over in Vietnam didn't talk about it for about 20 years. And that kind of changed when Iraq happened and became okay, we were there. It was such an unwanted war. But once uh, the Iraq, Afghanistan stuff, it was okay to be in the military then. Terry, did you want to share a few words before we go? I just wanted to say that I came back with a friend who had been there as well. We kind of stuck together, but if we ever mentioned we were in Vietnam, people would just turn their heads and look the other way. I mean, you, you just didn't talk about it. How did you come to feel about the war afterwards, Jackie? Uh, It took me a couple years to decide what I really felt. Oh. But I I got involved in some educational programs with some people that just got me thinking about the uselessness of losing all these lives and and how it wasn't a war we were ever going to win. So I decided that I was going to protest. That's where I actually met my husband in the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, which is a group of— Yeah, it was a group of—you've probably heard. They're the ones that threw their medals back over the White House fence. Yes, yes, yes. And I thought they're going to have the same experience, similar experience to mine. So that's the group I want to protest with. And and I felt like it was a good thing to do. I mean, I felt pretty strongly at that point that something needed to end this war. Terry? I continued, I guess, to be more patriotic. My dad was still in the Army, and he and I talked about the war, and he agreed that 
it was a worthless war, but hmm. we didn't do any protesting or anything because he was still in the army. <laughs> yeah, that Jerry, you want to share a few thoughts before we go? I think I just agree with the two of them because it was, uh, it really didn't help at that time. It almost made it worse. Well, I want to thank you for your service and for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. It was fun. Jackie Norris of Denver and Terry Hermans of Aurora volunteered with the Red Cross during the Vietnam War as what were dubbed Donut Dollies. Terry's husband, Jerry, is a Vietnam veteran. Well, in Vietnam, a group of fighter pilots volunteered for what was largely seen as an impossible mission, preventing the delivery of weapons and supplies from the north to the south. These pilots were known by their radio call sign, Misty. Close to a dozen were from Colorado. There's a documentary about them. It's called The Misty Experiment, The Secret Battle for the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I spoke with the executive producer, Dean Eckenberg, last year. This is more than just a film for you. You were in Vietnam and participated in the Misty Experiment. What was your role? I was a flight surgeon attached to uh, the squadron. A flight surgeon has specialized training in aeromedical kinds of issues. So you actually went up in the jets with these pilots on occasion, I understand. What stood out to you about the physical and mental strain that they had to deal with? Well, most of these missions lasted three hours or more. And so they had to hit the tanker a couple of times. So they were flying over North Vietnam. They were being shot at very often, sometimes continuously. And so they have to keep moving the airplane, jinking it back and forth. So the physical stress on the body was tremendous, not to speak of the stress uh, of uh, being shot at, finding targets, and putting other uh, fighters in on them. Yeah, we'll speak of that a bit. What was the mental strain that you saw on them? Well, you know, these guys were self-selected. They were trained to be pilots. They were selected to be fighter pilots. Then they were volunteers for this particular mission. So this particular group of men, the stress that they saw, they dealt with, they knew how to deal with it. So it wasn't like it was manifested, except maybe in, in certain extreme situations. What would be an extreme situation they'd face? Well, when they lost a buddy. You know, these were two-seaters, and sometimes... When they get shot down, one would come back, the other one wouldn't. And that was particularly stressful. There were 157 MISTI pilots. As we said, a number of them had connections to Colorado, including Roy Bridges Jr. Today, Bridges lives in Colorado Springs. In 1968, not long after graduating from the Air Force Academy, he was sent to Vietnam, arriving there New Year's Day. Bridges told us... One of the first things he noticed when he arrived at Phuket Air Force Base was the group of pilots in their clandestine operation. I was intrigued by their mission, you know, flying up in North Vietnam, rescuing people, knocking out surface-to-air missile sites, and basically um, battling the flow of supplies down the so-called Ho Chi Minh Trail to South Vietnam. What you want to do is make a difference, okay? And I thought I could make more of a difference flying with Misty than the routine missions down in South Vietnam. Bridges would fly 72 missions with Misty between July and November of 1968. 
Their missions involved flying into North Vietnam, about 30 minutes away from that base. They tried to identify where the supplies coming from the north were being moved and stored. And doing so from the sky took some time and skill. So here are some of the pilots in your film. We're developing our vision, and you'll hear the expression misty eyes. That means that they could see things that were heavily camouflaged. Nature doesn't like regular patterns. So if you see a rectangle sitting in the middle of a field, there's a good chance that it's a man-made object of some kind. During their missions, the pilots moved rapidly, but also flew at relatively low altitudes, which indeed made them ripe targets. And in the documentary, one pilot estimated that 30% of these Misties were shot down. Eight were killed in action. Roy Bridges, whose plane was hit during one of his sorties, talked about a, a rescue mission he flew. He said he was in the air for eight hours straight trying to clear a path so others could go in and retrieve the downed pilot. A big part of their mission was to rescue downed pilots in their area. There were a lot of rescues that were done. You know, Vietnam was a very unpopular war in the United States at the time, and I I wonder how that played into your decision to make the film and how you approached it. It was, but for those of us who were there and those of us who fought, it had a different kind of a meaning. And it was a very personal meaning for those of us, especially who uh, saw real combat. And so to make the movie, it was no question. Dean, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Dean Eckenberg is executive producer of The Misty Experiment, The Secret Battle for the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The documentary is available through PBS. We spoke in June of last year. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with a cycling team designed to break cycles. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR newsroom. And we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Bicycles are quintessentially Colorado. Hey, Speedy. You remember your first bicycle? Cherry red under the Christmas tree. Did you ever put uh, baseball cards in the spokes? Of course. The faster you went, the louder it got. That wasn't the sound of a baseball card. That was the sound of freedom. Don't you think every kid deserves a chance to feel that? Yes, I do. For decades, Greg Townsend provided that very opportunity for countless young people, leading them from the Medium Security Correctional School, where he worked in Watkins, Colorado, on rides across the country. A new film, Hard Miles, is based on Townsend, starring Matthew Modine. Before it screens Saturday at the Denver Film Festival, 
Townsend and director Dan Hanna spoke with my colleague Anthony Cotton. So, Greg, are you good with being portrayed on screen by Matthew Modine? Was George Clooney not available? <laughs> yeah, I think that Matthew is um, a great uh, individual and, and person. It was it was get, nice to get to know him. Um, he's very intelligent and uh, great to have conversations and uh, around just life and kids and wives and, and such. How much time did you actually get to spend with him during this process? You know, I was on set quite a bit. It was nice in between takes and such that we could spend some time. Um, we got to spend time. My best part was uh, my family and I, my daughter, my son, got to spend some time out there on different parts of the set. And the the crew was amazing. And, and um, everybody kind of ate dinner together and, and spent different times um, doing things. I think some of the, the funnest times were in uh, Marble Canyon when you know, Matthew is doing bus boys and I'm helping doing dishes. And then uh, we're all kind of helping clean up the restaurant afterwards after dinner. Oh, that's pretty cool. Big Hollywood star bussing tables. And it's interesting talking about your son and daughter being around because the movie wasn't really entirely complimentary to you. I'm wondering what was it like seeing your life being put up on the screen, warts and all, and then even having your kids... <laughs> watch that process taking place well um as my daughter says she says it's a great movie dad it's just not 100 percent you her thing is you're not that mean dad as we've said on, the, on set in different times there's, there's a lot of hollywood in it and um you know it's it's uh it's a movie and so it's you know if it's good for people and it's good for kids and, and people get inspired then um that's kind of why i signed on it took a while to do that but that's kind of the, my feelings about it. And Dan, I saw a bio on you that, that talked about you being drawn to out-of-place characters and unique environments. I'm guessing you partially became attached to this film because of those things. What, what about it hit those marks for you? Things about Greg really reminded me of some of my scoutmasters. I was in Boy Scouts growing up. And, you know, it was like, with these people and Greg has dedicated his whole life to it, obviously, but, you know, people who are trying in their own way to, to foster community and, and, and give, um, you know, young men, a role model, teach them things about life and about the world. And also the kind of humor and conflict and, you know, little, little scrapes that come in that world too. Uh, and, and that was one of the things that, that for me personally resonated with the movie was, was seeing someone trying to put their own life on hold a little bit to, to try and better other people, you know, the best way that they could. We had mentioned that, Greg, you provided opportunities for the students to ride, but this wasn't just along nearby trails in, in Colorado. In the film, the goal is to go from Watkins to the Grand Canyon, almost 800 miles away. You're a cyclist, and in the movie you decided to give up a riding vacation in order to take four of your students from the school down to Arizona. That was in lieu of a much shorter backpacking trip that was being considered. Like you mentioned the idea that there's some Hollywood involved in the movie. Is, is that what really happened? How did all of this get started? Well, we've been, uh, Rite of Passage has been in existence um, since 1984. Um, I have been uh, with Rite of Passage since that time and uh, took over cycling program in 1986. 
and uh, been the director head coach since. Um, we've done multiple trips. We've done, you know, across America, Canada, Mexico. Um, we've done many, many trips. Uh, the Grand Canyon um, was kind of a reward. Uh, we've done that trip 22 times. Uh, we've hiked the canyon, you know, rim to Phantom Ranch and back about 19 times. And we've done rim to rim to rim um, with the team after the ride down there. We've hiked the whole canyon from south to north back to south in, in less than 24 hours. So I think the big part that the film depicts pretty accurately is that this team, usually we did the trip at the end of the year. And this team did it at the start of the year. So they were brand new team and new cyclists, new to the sport. Um, and they struggled, you know, going over Wolf Creek Pass um, was a struggle. Um, my my 12-year-old son actually rode all the miles and that the film is depicted. He did the trip with the young men. And, uh, you know, it was, it was the battle getting up Wolf Creek Pass. And, and some of the guys were battling with my 12-year-old, you know, to not have him beat him. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of drama, a lot of, a lot of hard days, windstorms. Um, and different things on the trip. So I think that the, you know, the film did a, you know, did a decent job in some of the areas, but it's more of a composite, I think, of many different trips. Yeah. I'm wondering about that. The, the impact, what stands out to you in, in that sense that, that you're having with these kids and some of your favorite memories? You know, an example I could use when we crossed the United States, we had a couple guys that were, you know, rival gang members and uh, these guys were pretty bitter enemies uh, when we were in nevada they they got in an altercation and and uh, were fighting on a bike you know at 20 miles an hour and crashed and end up on a group meeting on the side of the road and by the time we made it to pennsylvania these guys were talking about moving in together going to college together um kind of how dumb it was that they had started off on the wrong foot and um, you get to see a lot of the different impacts. I have a young man that actually was on this trip that's going to be at the movie. And um, he's currently employed as a welder. He's been doing well for many years since this trip, because this was more than 10 years ago. And he uh, he's one of the main characters, kind of the hero of the film, but he'll be at the film. And so, you know, it's, it's good to keep in contact with the young men and, and see him grow up to, you know, be viable, you know, and, and, just to live in life that's uh, making better decisions. And, you know, that's kind of the beauty of it. I have friends that, you know, moved in with me and they were now they're in their fifties and they've got kids and lives and other guys don't make it. Some don't, they all don't make it, but uh, it's great to see when young men and young ladies that we work with make good decisions. Of course, the, in the film, you know, the idea of making the trip, was met with a great deal of skepticism. This is a conversation you're having, your character's having with the school principal played by Leslie David Baker, who was a regular on The Office. These kids, they're broken pieces. And try as we may to glue them back together, if we apply too much pressure, they crack in the same places. In welding, uh, we don't use glue, you use fire. You heat the metal until it melts and then you beat it into shape. You can't beat the kids, Greg. How much resistance did you get in in creating this program and, and working with these kids and indeed saying, hey, we're going to bicycle across the country? 
Um, I think there's always a challenge. There's always the negotiations. When we crossed America, we had a lot of negotiations and, you know, not, not a lot of resistance, but definitely a lot of, there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of, uh, you know, different liabilities that go into that. There's a lot of communication, logistics and such that goes into it. Um, kind of a, you live it, you know, we took three and a half months when we crossed the United States. And so it's, you know, you live outside. I lived outside for three and a half months and uh, we did 22 different facilities and try to inspire kids across America. And so there's a lot of logistics, but, uh, you know, there's some resistance, I think, from a standpoint of liabilities and such. But, you know, when we've done many, many, many trips and they're, you know, success, it builds less resistance. Yeah. Dan, the cinematography in the film is gorgeous. The vistas and the colors. I'm curious, is is a film, a shoot like this, more challenging somehow than, than being in a studio? Most definitely. It was definitely a challenging shoot being outside. Um, I think, you know, everything has its strengths and trade-offs and weaknesses. Like, the thing that's amazing about shooting outside is, is the vistas you mentioned, is seeing the the way the sun changes on a landscape and how that creates a sort of magic that you can't, you know, always find or create in a studio, especially because, you know, this is an indie movie and we wouldn't have had those resources. But, um, you know, the thing that's really challenging is just fighting time, fighting the sun and the elements. You know, if you're shooting by a giant mountain that's on your west side, uh, the sun's going to go behind it a lot sooner than you might think. And, um, you know, for the climax of the film, we shot one day at the Grand Canyon, including them riding up, including the police car that's following them. And so there's a sunset that takes place across a large portion of the final scenes of the movie. And that's one day and, and one sunset. And there's something both thrilling and and very scary about having to approach those days and and deliver, you know, and have the actors Thank God for our actors who just who just brought it every day, um, every moment, really. Yeah, I was curious about that. You know, the idea of of Matthew Modine writing and and the four students writing, and in the film, their characters weren't happy about all the writing they were doing. I'm guessing the actors weren't necessarily that thrilled either. I think it was a challenge sometimes when we're doing you know a big uphill climb, and it's like, okay, we got the wide. Let's go back and do it again. And uh, and then, okay, we missed that line. Let's do it again. You know, they had to do the, they had to do it. They had to keep climbing. And, um, you know, Matthew was someone I'd worked with once before and I kind of knew his attitude, his, his great attitude. And that um, he's someone that would, would always do the extra take, always do the extra uphill climb. And, you know, if he's doing it, then uh, none of these, uh, you know, teens or or young adults have an excuse really so that was a big help for us too now greg we talked about earlier that you know the film wasn't always complimentary towards you and and it makes it clear that you had a complex relationship with your father but in it also shows that some of the life lessons he tried to impart on you stuck and I want to play another clip, which comes at a crucial point in the ride during the film. Maybe we should load the bikes up, drive the rest of the miles. It's been a long day. No. If we use the van today, we'll use it every day, and this ride won't mean anything. It already doesn't mean anything. 
I vote we use the van. Same. Yeah. Because you never really tried to finish anything. And I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, Wilbright, when I said you were stupid. I thought you already knew. That's enough! I school you, man! You think it's easy being us? No. No, it's hard being you. I know what it is to grow up in fear. I've lived it. What, mommy and daddy spank you too much? You think I don't know what's going on inside your head? Huh? Right now you feel helpless. You think this is all pointless. You think this is all a big joke. You want to get in the van? Go ahead. It's right there. You can limp across the road right now. And none of this will have mattered. Or you could set a goal. You can set a goal today and know that nobody told you what you could or couldn't be. So, Greg, I, I'm going to try to say this delicately, but you sometimes you kind of come off as a jerk in the film. Uh, the relationship with your dad and seeing it portrayed on screen, was it hard looking at yourself so unflinchingly? I think that, uh, you know, that's the creative, loosely creative Hollywood part that uh, Daniel and the producer Christian, um, you know, they explained to me the conflict and the resolution part of the filming. Um, you know, I've we've had many situations and similar to that in, in respect to, you know, I had a whole, I had a whole group on one tour when we crossed, uh, went from Nevada to Colorado and such. We followed the Coors Classic back in the day and they were, you know, staff and students were both wanting to quit. And, uh, you know, I asked them, well, you know, we, we can keep those, make those easy decisions or we can push on and, and do it the right way. And, and, uh, you know, left them alone to make a good decision. And they said, you know what, we're not going to be quitters and we're going to keep going. I mean, one of the things I think my dad may have, you know, taught us, feed into us, whatever at times was, you know, there's no such words as can't. And, uh, I think I'm a big believer in that. And, and, trying to meet the impossible or meet our needs and not being defined, I think, by our situation. I was born with many different issues, um, physically, et cetera, but I, I luckily had a good mind. And, um, you know, I've been a special Olympic coach for 38 years and, and believe in, you know, there's more to a person individually than just their physicality and, and what we can accomplish. And, and our, our minds, I think, can control many things that maybe our body can't. Dan, was it kind of a, a dance that you had to do in the sense of Hollywood and literary license and, you know, kind of getting to the place with, with Greg where it was going to be okay to, to show the flaws and the complexities? You know, definitely. And I think it, I mean, I think it speaks a lot too to Greg and of being able to take a step back and look at the bigger picture too, because one of the things we wanted to do with the film is we wanted to inspire people to want to try and take some kind of action, positive action in their own life. Like, honestly, when you look at Greg's life, the, he's done so many great things for so long and helped so many people. It's almost hard. I think it would be hard for regular people to see themselves, you know, in him and think, well, he's just like a saint, you know, he's, he's different from me. I could never help people like that. And it's kind of trying to get a little bit of the everyman in someone who is, who is very different from every man, you know? And 
on that, like Greg put it well, it it is sort of trying to find, you know, we wanted to tell the real dramas of the road and we didn't want to really heavily fictionalize, you know, a lot of based on true story movies are heavily fictionalized and you kind of realize huge details were changed for the movie. Like, like, like the relationship with Greg's dad is, is based on the real relationship. Details are different for sure. We wanted to tell a story that was emotionally true and true to the spirit of the real dramas, the real conflicts and Greg's real story. But in doing that, you have to find moments here and there that can represent, you know, some bigger conflict on screen for 30 seconds that might have been, you know, something that brewed across a week on the road. And so that's kind of where a lot of the dramatic license comes in is escalating things and, you know, making at times Greg represent only the side of we have to push through, we have to be strong, we have to take this harsh approach and then allowing Hattie, his, um, you know, his sort of co-counselor to represent the other side. Whereas we all know, you know, everyone contains multitudes and has a little of this, a little of that. But um, Greg had to represent the kind of hard, strong, um, stick to side of this for us. Yeah, I was, I was going to say Hattie is kind of like your Greg's better angel, you know, trying largely unsuccessfully to reel in some of the extreme impulses. And I, it made me wonder, though, in, in real life, like the, the impact in terms of maybe moving away from your relationship with your father and and becoming like your kids say you're not you're not that mean a guy like did you how did you mellow out in in some ways you know i think one of the things that i vowed to do in my life was um may sound kind of bad but my dad was like a good dad or a bad father or one or the other he taught us many lessons that were pretty good but he had a you know he was a prisoner of war for nine and a half months and he was part of the black march in germany and lost 50 pounds and all kinds of things and lived through it but you know i don't i don't know what i didn't know much different but um i my dad was pretty out of control when he was out of control um you know broke broke both my legs when i was six and did different things to different parts of our family and and uh I, you know, ran away a lot. I distanced myself. I didn't really, I'd say, connect mo- emotionally from a standpoint. If it was me, it was more him. And But I vowed with myself that, uh, you know, I had some challenges over the years, I guess, like anybody with anger. But I think that one of the things that I feel good about and proud about is that I wasn't, I never became my father. And, um, you know, he was a product of the cycle of, of you know, of abuse and violence from his family and his parents. Um, and he continued that. And, um, you know, I'm proud of the fact that we changed that cycle in our family. You mentioned one of your former students will be at the film Saturday. Will there be others in attendance at the festival? And, and also, what does it mean to you, Greg, to see the film being screened here in Colorado? Well, I think the biggest part for me in Colorado is there's a community that you know, for 20 plus years, really supported the cycling team. So I think to me, it means that it's really nice. I know that other people in the cycling community are going to come see the film. Um, So 
I see it as a thank you to them. And, and uh, it's good for the, you know, it's, it's good to inspire some cycling communities. Obviously, Colorado is a big cycling state, but it's good to say thank you to people that have, uh, you know, shared and part of the village of helping kids change. Greg and Dan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's great to thank be here. You. Greg Townsend and Dan Hanna speaking with our own Anthony Cotton. Townsend is a former teacher at a medium security correctional school in Watkins, Colorado. His cycling team for at-risk youth there is depicted in the film Hard Miles. Hannah is the director. It screens Saturday at Denver Botanic Gardens, part of the Denver Film Festival. A note that CPR is sponsoring the movie's Colorado premiere, but had no influence in our decision to spotlight it. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these stars. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.